Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to AM Live. Hope you're having a good weekend. A lot to discuss as always. Today I just wanted to play some remarks from Stephen F. Cohen to start us off. Stephen F. Cohen is uh, the late eminent professor of Russian studies at Princeton and NYU. A huge influence on me and uh, many others who share my outlook on the whole Russia Ukraine crisis and related matters. And as I write about today in an article I wrote on Substack, which I'll link to below in the show notes for this episode, back in October 2019, when Trump was being impeached after he paused some weapon sales to Ukraine while also pressuring its government to investigate Joe Biden, Stephen F. Cohen warned that all this was hugely dangerous because what this push in Congress to impeach Trump for impeaching for pausing weapons to Ukraine was doing was basically encouraging the proxy war in Ukraine that these weapons were being used for and that were fueling. And this was at a time when Zelensky had just recently taken office. And people forget this, but Zelensky was elected with a huge mandate, more than 70% of the vote. And what was his main promise? It was to make peace with Russia. It was to end the war in the Donbass, which at that point had been going on for many years, killed thousands of people. And Zelensky had said that he would take political risks to end the war. And so Professor Cohen pointed out to me then, this is October 2019, how important it was for the U.S. to support Zelensky, because if not, Zelensky would not be able to overcome the power of Ukraine's far right, who wanted nothing to do with any sort of peace agreement with Russia. So this is what Professor Cohen said. We have a situation now which seems not to be widely understood, that the new president of Ukraine, Zelensky, ran as a peace candidate. This is a bit of a stretch, and maybe it doesn't mean a whole lot to your generation, but he ran a kind of George McGovern campaign. The difference was McGovern got wiped out, and Zelensky won by, I think, 71, 72 percent. He won an enormous uh, mandate to make peace. So uh, that means he has to negotiate with Vladimir Putin. And there are various formats, right? There's the so-called Minsk format, which involves the German and the French. There's bilateral directly with Putin. But his willingness, and this is what's important and not well reported here, uh, his willingness to deal directly with Putin, which his predecessor, Poroshenko, was not, or couldn't, or whatever reason, actually required considerable boldness on Zelensky because there are opponents of this in Ukraine, and they are armed. Some people say they're fascists, but they're certainly ultra-nationalists. And they have said that they'll remove and kill Zelensky if he continues along this line of negotiating with Putin. So now along comes Trump, right? So Trump makes a wrong-headed phone call to Zelensky about Biden and information. It was a wrong thing to do. No two ways of looking at that. But the more important thing is, and that's why I'd like to see the full transcript of the, uh, we've only been given a partial so far as I know. I want to know if Trump encouraged Zelensky to continue the negotiation with Putin. And here's why. Zelensky cannot go forward as I've explained, I mean, his life is being threatened, literally, by quasi-fascist movements in Ukraine. He can't go forward with full peace negotiations with Russia, with Putin, unless America has his back. He, maybe that won't be enough, but unless the White House encourages this diplomacy, Zelensky has no chance of negotiating the end of the war, so the stakes are enormously high. So that's Professor Cohen in 2019, and what he warned about turned, unfortunately, to be tragically correct. The U.S. at every turn sided with the Ukrainian far right, who took every opportunity they could to sabotage any possibility of peace with Russia. Whether Zelensky was serious about it or not, 
the Ukrainian far right made sure it wouldn't happen with demonstrations that turned violent and even open threats on Zelensky's life, as I write about in my latest piece up at Substack. So fast forward to now, and the U.S. is effectively still siding with Ukrainians far right to sabotage peace. And this is a point that was made this week by John Mearsheimer, who is a scholar at the University of Chicago. He has, as most people know, he's been warning about exactly the crisis that we're seeing now ever since 2014. He's always been saying that you that the U.S. is basically leading Ukraine into a situation in which it's going to get destroyed because it's been using Ukraine as a tool to try to bleed Russia. And Russia will ultimately respond, as Russia has done now with this catastrophic war. So this week, uh, Mearsheimer, who is also a friend of Stephen F. Cohen, spoke uh, at a panel uh along with Katrina Vanden Heuvel, who was the uh, widow of Stephen F. Cohen, and she's also the publisher of The Nation magazine. And Katrina asked Mearsheimer to talk about whether or not the far right inside Ukraine will allow Zelensky to make a peace deal now with Russia. And Mearsheimer responded to that by invoking, just as Stephen F. Cohen did, the role of the U.S. To what extent, Professor Mearsheimer... Uh, do you believe the Ukrainian far right stops the government in Kiev from cutting a deal with the Russians? I think that when Zelensky ran for president, he made it very clear that he wanted to work out an arrangement with Russia that ended the crisis in Ukraine. And he won. And what he then tried to do was move toward implementing the Minsk II agreement. If you were going to shut down the conflict in Ukraine, you had to implement Minsk II. And Minsk II meant giving the Russian-speaking and the ethnic Russian population in the easternmost part of Ukraine, the Donbass region, a significant amount of autonomy. And you had to make uh, the Russian language an official language of Ukraine once again. That had to be done. I think Zelensky found out very quickly that because of the Ukrainian right, it was impossible to implement Minsk II. Therefore, even though the French and the Germans, and of course the Russians, were very interested in making Minsk II work because they wanted to shut down the crisis, they couldn't do it. In other words, the Ukrainian right was able to stymie Zelensky on that front. Now, Zelensky understands that if he cuts a deal with Russia today, he has to face the Ukrainian right. That's why Zelensky has said that any peace agreement has to be approved by the Ukrainian public. He's going to ask for a referendum because Zelensky understands that he cannot take the Ukrainian right on by himself. So basically, we have a situation where Zelensky is stymied. Now, very importantly, the Americans will side with the Ukrainian right because the Americans and the Ukrainian right Both do not want Zelensky cutting a deal with the Russians that makes it look like the Russians won. So this is the principal reason uh, I'm very uh, pessimistic about Ukraine's ability to help shut this one down. And just to underscore this point, the Washington Post reported this on April 5th about the prevailing viewpoint in Washington and Brussels. Quote, for some in NATO, it's better for the Ukrainians to keep fighting and dying than to achieve a peace that comes too early or at too high a cost to Kiev and the rest of Europe, unquote. So that's making a plane right there. First of all, the idea that there are people outside of Ukraine who feel as if 
they have a, a say in what a peace settlement should be, tells you about how much they care about Ukrainian lives. And they even, the Washington Post makes it clear here that there are some who believe it's better for the Ukrainians to, quote, keep fighting and dying than to achieve a peace that comes at too early or too high a cost to Kiev and the rest of Europe. The cost, of course, has to be borne by Ukrainians. And that's why Ambassador Chas Freeman, uh, who is a veteran U.S. diplomat who I recently interviewed on my show Pushback, said that the U.S. policy is to fight Russia in Ukraine to the last Ukrainian. So that is my opening rant. We have callers ready to go, so I will take your calls. Andrew, you're up first. Hello, Aaron. Are you able to hear me? Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's good to talk to you. Um, so I've been thinking about the the fact that you and Matt Taibbi and a couple of other people have said that um, you don't want to make predictions necessarily in the future, or you kind of apologize for this, the idea that you called the invasion wrong. Um, <clears throat> but I think it's important to look a little deeper than this, uh, whether or not you predicted they would invade correctly or not, because many people um, didn't think that was going to happen. And I think it's more important to look at the lines of logic that we were using and uh, what evidence was being offered. And I'm not saying this to brag, but I did call your show and say, I, th- I think they're going to invade. But the, the reason I thought that was because of open source intelligence that was apart from the government. And the, the key to that is open source things that you can look at yourself, or if you have the technical ability, you can show it to other people without having a bureaucracy uh, hide details and tell you what you're allowed to know. And this is especially important in uh, the retrospect of them now coming out and telling us, which is hilarious that they've told us this, but that the evidence that they have from the intelligence agencies doesn't need to be solid. In other words, they can use low confidence reports and state it as fact now. So we shouldn't be thinking that, oh, they're just starting this policy now. The thing is, they've been doing that the whole time. They're just admitting it now. And so when you go back and look at the uh, predictions that were being made by the U.S. government, they weren't, should we have listened to them? Even in retrospect, I say the answer is no. Um, I didn't I didn't believe our own government, but I thought they were going to invade because our government wasn't providing any evidence. And Russia had done things before with uh, trainings on the border without them invading. So I just think it's kind of important to to think about how just because we got that, uh, some people got that wrong, doesn't mean that we should have taken what they were saying uh, as as valid, especially considering the the admissions they've made. And I wanted to ask you, uh, do you think that this war is uh, ongoing because of negligence or because this is something the U.S. wanted to happen because this comes into the prediction thing. I've heard people say that the U.S. made a good prediction and that they, they took a risk. I heard this on the Hill saying that they took a risk and by coming out and saying they're going to invade. I don't see how that's the case, because if they if Russia didn't invade, they would have just taken credit and said said they stopped the invasion. So I think they were I think they they really think they were going to or not. And did they want them to or not? Yeah, I I think they were confident that Russia was going to invade because they knew how serious Russia's concerns were about NATO expansion and also ending the war in the Donbass. And they knew that they were not going to give Russia any of that. That's been made increasingly clear. I think I talked about this last week where the Wall Street Journal reported that 
in mid-February, the German ambassador Schultz went to Zelensky in Munich and said, I propose that Ukraine, uh, well, I'll, I'll just read it. I'll just read it from the Wall Street Journal. This is the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Schultz, quote, told Zelensky in Munich on February 19th, so just days before the invasion, that Ukraine should renounce its NATO aspirations and declare neutrality as part of a wider security deal between the West and Russia. The pact will be signed by Putin and Biden, who would jointly guarantee Ukraine security. Sounds great, right? But the Wall Street Journal reports, Zelensky said Putin couldn't be trusted to uphold such an agreement and that most Ukrainians wanted to join NATO. His answer left German officials worried that the chances of peace were fading. So Zelensky, up until the end, rejected any talk of neutrality, even though, as he recently admitted, and I played the clip before on this show, he said that he privately he asked NATO, when are we going to join? Can you give us a guarantee? And NATO told him, you will never join, but the doors will remain open publicly. So basically, we're going to just use you in public to bait Russia. And this also accompanied, as I've talked about and I've written about, including in my latest piece, the talks on implementing Minsk went absolutely nowhere. Zelensky's top aide, uh, top security aide, after Zelensky was elected on a platform of implementing Minsk, right before the invasion, he was saying that actually, if we implement Minsk, it will mean the country's destruction. And at the last talks on Minsk's implementation, Zelensky's team refused to even speak to the Russian rebels. So it was clear that Zelensky obviously under U.S. pressure, had no interest in diplomacy. And given that, I think that's why the U.S. was so confident that Russia would invade, because it knew how important these concerns were to Russia. And this was coupled also with uh, what I'm told, and I haven't verified this for myself, but people like Scott Ritter and a Swiss former intelligence official who I just interviewed, which I'll be publishing soon on Pushback, his name is Jack uh, Bowe, he says that there was... uh, increased Ukrainian military activity around the Donbass right before the invasion and also increased shelling of the rebel-held side, as documented by the OSCE. And so that is what helped convince, in the view of, of Ritter and Jack Bo, that uh, Russia, that Ukraine was planning some sort of offensive inside the Donbass. So that's why I suspect the U.S. was so confident that Russia would invade. And by the way, on my own predictions, I never said that Russia would not invade. I doubted U.S. claims about an imminent invasion and some of these specific intelligence claims that they made. Uh, but I, I, wrote a whole, I wrote a whole article in January that was called, uh, January 26th, that was called The Ukraine Crisis, sponsored by U.S. hegemony and war profiteers. And the premise was this. If Biden can interrupt NATO expansion and war profiteering, the, the U.S.-Russia standoff over Ukraine can be resolved and a major Russian escal- uh, invasion could be avoided. So the premise of my article was that Russia could possibly invade, and the way to avoid that was to give up on using Ukraine as cannon fodder, which obviously didn't happen. So does that answer your question? Yeah, I didn't mean to put words in your mouth there either. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I, I, I just wonder, obviously this is a multi-administration, uh, over-decade-long project to get uh, to at least threaten Russia with uh, Ukraine joining NATO, and um, I, I wonder if you think it would be any different if the administration were different, if it was a Republican administration, if Joe Biden collapsed and you know Kamala became president, or is this more of just a one of those quote unquote deep state long term projects that's just going to happen regardless of who's in the administration? And then uh, I'll hang up. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Well, the question of would this have happened under a Trump administration is a good one. I hate to 
give Trump any credit because I think his administration was so awful in so many ways. And he appointed people who are just as terrible as Biden's. But I'm not sure. Uh, it's I, and In fact, Trump in public was much more conciliatory to Russia than anybody else was. And that's why part of the reason he was targeted with Russiagate. And it's possible that his administration just avoided the, the inevitable, which is under the Biden-Obama camp. Uh, this policy of using Ukraine as cannon fodder would have caused a Russian invasion at some point, as has been warned about by people like John Mearsheimer for so long. And now, of course, the only exception was actually Obama, who himself refused to send the weapons that Trump was pressured into sending. So, but had basically Hillary Clinton won in 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton did not share Obama's policy. She shared the policy of Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and Biden, and also Lindsey Graham and, and John McCain, which is basically using Ukraine for a proxy war. So I think Obama, to his credit, uh, under him, we saw Minsk because he did not want to send weapons to Ukraine and arm neo-Nazis. But under pretty much anyone else in the, in the Democratic Party who was a viable candidate, uh, I don't think th- this would, would have been any different. And possibly Trump, because he expressed some interest in diplomacy with Russia, maybe he could have avoided it. But Trump was also pretty weak in avoiding the pressure of neocons. So he he might have caved as well. Russiagate would have been alive well and well. So I, I worry if Trump was president, he would even be pressured to be worse than even imaginable. Yeah. So, yeah. But thanks for your time. Thank you. All right, John. And John, to speak, you have to press the microphone button in the bottom right. And if that's not working, then we'll have to take the next caller, but come back in the queue if you can figure it out and we'll let you back in. Okay, Matthew, you're up. Hello? Hello. Uh, hello, Aaron. I just wanted to know if you think that, like, after a decisive battle that results in the Donetsk and Lugansk republics being, like, liberated and claimed by Russia, when Russia announces a ceasefire and tries to end their special military operations, a.k.a. tries to stop this war, do you think Ukraine will just ignore that and just continue to attack those territories as retaliation for the atrocities committed? Whereas because they feel like those territories belong to them and what Russia did must be undone uh, as soon as possible. Or perhaps the U.S. slash NATO is controlling them at that. And at that point, the hysteria is so bad that they feel Russia must pay and the military industrial conflicts must keep this war going at any cost. Because I do believe the U.S. wants this war to keep going long as, as long as possible. General Mark Miley says he expects this war to go on years and years. And it's sort of clear that the Biden administration won't accept anything other than a troll withdrawal back to pre-war in terms of status quo, at least in my point of view. Do you agree with this hypothesis? According to adding to that, it's been speculated by certain independent journalists such as Caitlin Johnstone, Pepe, Pepe uh, Escobar, I hate to bring him once again, but Pierre Lavelle and George Samuelary, that just seems to be that an indication that the proxy war phase of the U.S. slash NATO is coming to an end and we're having to at least 
like one Mia event, think a chemical attack, you know, something that's used to get the pressure on Washington so so intense that they're like cave in with a no fly zone or some military psych, you know, something that puts us into like some kind of direct military conflict between NATO and Russia. I assume you've heard NATO's deploying what is called full scale deployment with troops to the, uh, to the countries surrounding the Ukrainian border, wrong with, like, statements and tweets by European officials, basically saying, Ukraine will win this war by hook or by quirk. Probably yes. not literally, but I do remember the former as an actual thing being right. said. Speaking right. of tweets, uh, I bring up these two, these two that summarize this sentiment by fellow independent journalists. Pepe Escobar said, uh, the proxy war is over. Eurocrats believe they can win, <laughs> win the war in Ukraine on the battlefield. NATO is entering full-scale deployment mode. It's Russia that decides when to maximize the pain trial. And Gonzo Lira quoted uh, that tweet and stated, yes, it looks like the, me- the, the momentum for NATO to go war with Russia over Ukraine is beginning to surge. The hypersonic missile hit scared them, but that fear has worn off, and they actually think they can take the Russians head to head. They are believing their own propaganda. Do you agree with that? this sentiment that Europe and NATO... And they're they're starting to ramp up for a possible direct military confrontation. Do you agree we're heading in that direction, or do you think it's a bit alarmist, although without good reason? Where do you fall into no, this person? Yeah, no, I think it's a fair concern at this point. I think there are people inside NATO states who want that. They actually want to see a confrontation. They're confident that Russia won't actually use nuclear weapons, and they're willing to risk it. So I think it's a totally fair concern, and it's very scary. And I think you raise a lot of good points and things to be keeping our eye on as this war gears on. So thank you, Matthew. Thanks for the call. Thank you. I, I just want to know the uh, the latter question. Of like when Russia stop tries to stop this war, do you think they'll allow that to happen, or just they'll just force Ukraine to attack? Uh, I I can't I can't predict that far. But what I can say is, U.S. policy so far seems entirely geared towards encouraging confrontation. And if you look at what was happening in February when Germany was engaged in diplomacy to try to stop the war, uh, Zelensky and the U.S. were acting pretty belligerent. Zelensky was talking about not just joining NATO, but acquiring nuclear weapons. There was increased shelling of the Donbass by Ukrainian forces. Zelensky refused to negotiate with the uh, Russian-backed rebels. Zelensky's advisor, as I, as I said, was talking about Minsk Accords being meaning the destruction of Ukraine. Zelensky rejected a German offer for uh, Ukraine to accept neutrality in exchange for security guarantees from both the U.S. and Russia. So there's plenty of evidence pointing to uh, Ukraine and the U.S. being deliberately provocative. So no reason to not expect that that, that won't continue. I, and, and do you agree with this uh, little, uh, uh, when it comes to the people who think they can win a war against Russia, such as like Poland or something? Yeah. I don't, I don't, agree, I don't, I can't like predict their thoughts, but what do you think, European, just what do you think in general? Do you think they can truly think that or... That they can truly think what? They can win a war against Russia. Oh, uh, I have no, I have no idea what goes on in the minds of people like that. Yes, um, there, there, there are people. I'm sure they actually believe that. They and look, they're seeing, they're seeing that you that Russia has had some setbacks in Ukraine. That's the common perception, at least. So 
that might give people even more confidence who who want to risk it. Yeah, that's that. I, I not that's not reassuring. It's not. No, it's not. No, it is not. Matthew, thanks for the call. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, Jeff, you're up. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, if I may, just as a brief prelude to my remarks, uh, tomorrow marks the uh, three-year anniversary of Julian Assange's incarceration in Belmarsh Prison. So we hold uh, vigils today um, across London, uh, as we will tomorrow, um, outside Belmarsh Prison and other locations. And I just ask people to keep him in mind, because this month is particularly uh, is going to be a particularly anxious one because on the 20th, the extradition papers, his extradition papers, are actually going to be sent to the uh, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, who's sort of the equivalent over here of the uh, Secretary of State. And, you know, things could turn ugly pretty quickly. So fingers crossed for Julian Assange uh, on that. Um, what I meant to say is um, I listened earlier in the week to the debrief uh, podcast with Brianna Joy Gray, and she was interviewing uh, Norman Finkelstein, you know, political scientist. And um, they talked a lot about cancel culture, but they also talked about the war in Ukraine. And Finkelstein, um, he was very careful with what he said, but I have to be honest, it did surprise me. He said that he wouldn't say that the, uh, the invasion is legal, and he said he wouldn't say that it was necessarily wise or prudent decision. But he seemed to think that um, Russia had the moral right to, to invade based upon the enormous Russian sacrifice in World War II where you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 million Russian citizens were killed by Nazism. And um, he, it was interesting because the three people he mentioned as sources who he respected on the topic were the late Stephen F. Cohen, uh, Noam Chomsky, and John Mersheimer. And he pointed out, I mean, Cohen sadly is no longer with us, but he pointed out that Mersheimer and Chomsky both except that Russia has legitimate grievances and they largely agree uh, with um, the fact that, you know, Russia has gotten nowhere in the past 20 or so years of negotiations and diplomacy, that NATO is already on Russia's border, you know, in the Baltic states and is creeping ever closer to the point where Ukraine has really become a de facto NATO state. I mean, it's um, involved in military exercises with NATO countries. It's being flooded with NATO weapons. Its military capacities are being upgraded so they're compatible with NATO technology. And he, um, Finkelstein seemed to be making the point that Putin wasn't under an obligation to wait until there were American nuclear-tipped missiles on Russia's border. And although I thought his argument was um, kind of emotional because it was based on, I mean, I know his family history with the Holocaust and everything. And of course, it's based on Russia's national trauma during World War Two and, and the, the, the strength of feeling with which, you know, many Russians feel towards Nazism. Um, but I have to admit, it was quite a powerful 
contribution. I was wondering what you thought of that, if you had the chance to listen to it. Yeah, I did listen to that. And I, you know, Norman is a very persuasive debater. He's got a lot of facts on his side and he's very, he's very sharp. And I thought he raised some good points. I, I still would like to, and I've talked to Norman a bit about this and, and maybe I'll pursue this with him publicly, but I just don't know you can make the case that Russia really did exhaust all diplomatic options. Even if you have plenty of legitimate grievances, and even if you have been trying diplomacy for a long time, which Russia has, I think you can fairly say that, uh, can, you, can Russia credibly say that it exhausted all diplomatic options to avoid an invasion? And I just, I'm not convinced of that. Why not go to the UN and try to get a peacekeeping mission? Now, maybe a counter-argument to that is that if you do that, then that's tipping your hand, and that is forcing you in a situation to signal to your opponents that you definitely will invade if uh, you don't get what you want. So, but I'd like to hear those arguments. I just think if you're, it's, I certainly think it's debatable, and I certainly don't accept the analogies between what Russia did and what the U.S. did to Iraq, which was mm-hmm. a naked act of aggression against a country around the world that posed no threat to anybody, especially the U.S. Ukraine and Russia is very different. That's a NATO proxy on Russia's borders, a civil war that's killed thousands of people fueled by U.S. weapons, being integrated into the uh, NATO military alliance. So it's totally different. But I just think that to make the case that Russia had the moral right to invade, it means you have to consistently prove that it had exhausted all diplomatic alternatives. And I just don't think that case has been made. But I'm open to it. I'm totally open to it. Yeah, I mean, I think Finkelstein was on shaky ground when he mentioned the 1973 Yom Kippur War because Anwar Sadat did go to war with Israel on, you know, in 1973, but it was after six years of Israeli occupation of Egyptian territory. And I suppose the more... He drew a comparison between the Ukraine situation and that, but of course it's Russia that's currently occupying, you know, the Crimea, which is part of Ukraine. So the analogies, uh, you know, can be problematic. Um, and also there's the fact that it's not just the Russians who suffered you know, terribly in World War II. You had the Ukrainians who in the 1930s experienced a famine, you know, which many historians regard as a, uh, a deliberate man-made famine by the Soviet Union. So, you know, th- there's a lot of past atrocities to take into account. And I think we're probably best. I think I agree with you. I think we're probably best sticking to international law. Finkelstein was very honest. He said, definitely under international law, what Russia is doing is illegal. Uh, And um, I think it's probably testament to um, the sort of health of the uh, anti-war movement and the left that so so many of us, including me and you and Chomsky and people like that, and the younger generation, uh, you know, we regard war as a very grave thing and it has to be the last resort. And even even if it were to come down to 10 more years of pointless negotiations, but maybe a little light at the end of the tunnel after 10 years or something, you know, I'd take that in a second rather than go to war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jeff, thank you for the call. Thank you. Marcus, you are up. And to speak, just remember to hit, there you go. Yeah, Hi. Um, first of all, I just want to thank you for keeping me sane. <laughs> um, I'm from Norway, so I want to apologize in advance if I'm not able to articulate my question that well. 
Um, if we assume that the U.S. Um, okay, let's say that the U.S. knows that the uh, the end the end of this is that um, the the Russians are going to uh, win in quotation signs. Um, what do you think is the goal? Do you feel like that it is to expand NATO or uh, like, is it the, the military industrial complex that are seeking to like sell weapons? Uh, like, what do you think is the grand scheme if, if you would indulge me to speculate? Well, I've written a lot about this. U.S. policymakers have been very, very clear that they essentially see Ukraine as a tool uh, that can be used to bleed Russia, given Ukraine's physical location and the deep cultural and historical ties between the two countries. Uh, Carl Gershman, who is the former head of the National Endowment for Democracy, which is a U.S. intelligence cutout, engages in U.S.-led uh, regime change efforts around the world. He wrote an article in late 2013 calling Ukraine the biggest prize. And he pointed out that if Ukraine can be pulled into the Western orbit, then that could redound to Russia and even uh, lead to uh, Vladimir Putin's overthrow. The intelligence firm Stratfor put out a similar position. So I think that's just what's been going on. Now, it's a certain it's a big bonus that there are weapons contractors in Washington who make a lot of money from this war. Uh, the proxy war in, in Donbass has been very profitable for them, as has NATO expansion. And that's why, as I've pointed out, one of the most expensive lobbying rounds in history came in the late 90s when the Senate was considering whether to expand NATO. And the head of a group called the Committee to Expand NATO was a guy named Bruce Jackson. And Bruce Jackson's day job was being the vice president of Lockheed Martin. So certainly there are arms industry interests at play here. But I think the, the prevailing thing is um, hegemony, which is that Ukraine is being used as a, as a tool to, to weaken what has traditionally been the U.S.'s biggest competitor and a, and a deterrent to U.S. power around the world. And this is especially um, a, a factor given what Russia did to the U.S. and Syria. Russia basically stopped the regime change campaign in Syria. This was admitted by John Kerry in 2016 in a leaked recording that I've played before on the show, where he said the reason Russia came into Syria is because we, as in the U.S., was watching ISIS encroach on Damascus, and we were hoping that ISIS's growth inside Syria could pressure Assad to leave. So basically, Kerry was saying that the U.S. was leveraging ISIS to force Assad out of power. And Kerry said that the reason ISIS came in is because, quote, they didn't want an ISIS government. That's what the U.S. was risking, an ISIS government. And Russia stopped that with its air bombing campaign. So that has fueled a huge level of animus toward Russia inside Washington on top of what already exists. And I think that that's also what motivates now U.S. officials to try to take revenge uh, on Russia via Ukraine. And there was even a, a Iran study in 2019, which I will link to in the episode notes here. It was about overextending and unbalancing Russia. And it was just looking at all the strategies the U.S. could pursue to basically bleed Russia. And one of the ways they could do it was arm the jihadist insurgents inside Syria. But they decided that, that was not really a good option because the war was winding down and also because of the dangers of arming um, extremist fanatics. But their top choice was arming Ukraine because they felt that would 
force Russia to ultimately intervene, which is exactly what's happened. Okay. I'm satisfied with that answer. <laughs> okay. All right. A good one. Thanks for the call. Greg, you're up. Hey, Aaron. Uh, I had a question regarding whether you thought um, there's kind of two competing narratives that I can see for what Putin's or the Kremlin's or Russia's strategy in Ukraine is. One of them is basically that they're trying to rebuild, um, not rebuild the Russian empire exactly, but expand uh, the land gap between Moscow and um and Germany, basically, because it's a huge plane. That's an invasion highway that's been used throughout history. And a lot of people are saying that, not a lot of people, but people from Stratcom and, you know, who tend to be more in line with the U.S. narrative say that that is the end goal and that eventually Russia is going to expand into Transnistria and, and Moldova and then eventually expand into NATO, which I don't completely understand, like how that's going to happen without the world ending or how they think that's really a possibility without full-blown nuclear war occurring. But the other theory is that the Russians, um, and I read this from a Swiss standpoint, it was some paper, and they say the Russians uh, conducted a, the military operation in Ukraine, not perfectly, but that the attack on Kiev was more of a feint to draw Ukrainian forces away from the Donbass and the other regions of Ukraine to kind of spread them over a larger area so the Russians could conduct their operations in Kherson and in the south and uh, near Mariupol and uh, make a land bridge to Crimea because that the, the water source for Crimea is ex extremely important to Russia. And so the, the, their idea is that eventually the Russians will likely anchor around the, the Dnieper. And I was just wondering what you if you think of something in between or you have a different perspective on that. That's above my pay grade. I just, I don't have the expertise to weigh in on that stuff. It, do, it makes sense to me. You know, for that kind of stuff, I follow people like Scott Ritter, who I think has been saying something similar to what you're saying, that the uh, encroachment on Kiev was a feint and to really divert Ukrainian forces so Russia could achieve its real objectives, which is, you know, um, destroying the Azov presence in Mariupol and securing the Donbass. You know, that makes sense to me, but I, I don't mm -hmm. have the... I, just, uh, I don't. I don't have the capacity to. No, I told. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least you're being honest. <laughs> Not yeah. everyone's honest. I also just wanted to say I listened to that Norm Finkelstein thing as well, and I totally get him being emotionally uh, invested in his narrative. But I mean, I I have family too who was you know who fought the Germans who were imprisoned by the Germans and I I just don't think looking that way is super helpful at the situation and saying Russia has a mandate because I mean if you look at the Russians there's a certain somebody I follow on Telegram who's a marxist who's fighting in the DNR who one of your colleagues may have interviewed and he is uh not happy with you Aaron to put things uh uh I don't I don't know why he's not happy with you but he's calling you some kind of bad names it's very odd to me and he's like it's really? like it's wait it's, wait, wait is this is this russell bentley yes <laughs> he's calling me he's calling me names are you sure uh, he is he was calling you basically like a sellout i don't Why? know exactly uh it was in his telegram um well send i would it have to, to me. Go. I, i'm curious i mean i, I, I you know I, yeah i, I mean i 
I've never, all I want... I've never met Russell. I've never met Russell, but I'm, I'm I'm surprised to hear that. I, but I, I'm I'm just curious now why. He's yeah, and I and I, you know I think it's important to point out while there are extremists fighting on the Ukrainian side, there are also extremists fighting for the DNR. They're they're just as radicalized. They wave around Soviet iconography. And I'm not like somebody that thinks the Soviet Union was evil by any stretch of the imagination. I think it did a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. It was, it was, you know, I look at it in more of a gray tone and uh, a lot of the people I see, you know, who are in the DNR, you know, they, they wave around the, the, the Soviet flag. And that's like, that's going to piss off Ukrainians just as much as, you know, a Russian seeing, you know, um, kind of Nazi iconography and to me it's it's that that isn't a narrative that's being uh talked about on the left also so Mm -hmm. I think that's Mm -hmm. important to talk about anyways yeah all right well all right thank you Aaron thanks for calling (laughs) and I'll I'll send that to you (laughs) appreciate it appreciate it all right just to explain for people Russell Bentley is a guy from Texas who has been living in the Donbass for many years and has been uh he fought on the side of the breakaway republics there and has been documenting what life is like living under Ukrainian bombardment for the last eight years. And so I, I'd be curious to hear why, if he really did call me out why he did that. But anyway, to be continued, Lee, you are up. Hello, Aaron. Hi. Can you hear me? Hi. Uh, a quick suggestion and question just as we're all trying to think outside the box, how to, in fact, the thing you were just talking about is an example where so many of the forces that are so complex are polarizing because follow the money. And we don't have time for this, you know, like, and it's attention away from finding bridges. And, you know, I, appreciate so much of what you and and Matt and Katie and, you know, Dora and everybody are doing, and Max are doing. And I'm, everybody, hundreds of people I know are so steeped in the Rachel Maddow situation, et cetera, et cetera. And I just want to- Condolences. Pardon me? Condolences. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not only that, it's, that's not even my point. I can manage that. It's yeah, but thank you. So you're following me here, but I just, I, you know, the other day when you mentioned to Larry Wilkerson uh, and what's an NCO, you know, and I was not that I needed to be reminded, but thank goodness you haven't been in the military. Thank goodness you haven't been. And, and I see you in a dangerous position. I've been there too. Um, where you want to speak the truth, but but my kind of my point is the framing of so much of what's going on has to do with individuals who have clout, who uh, don't want to be rejected from the tribe, and and it doesn't matter what the facts are. Like the people, the older I get, the more I recognize, and and I'm fighting any confirmation bias because I don't. You know, I want to believe people care about the facts. Well, no. (laughs) The older I get, I realize, no, they don't. In fact, they will, you know, if it's that old thing of if we tell you, we have to kill you. You know, and and by the way, I like everything that Scott Ritter says, but keep in mind, he got set up on that pedophile online thing about 10 years ago that, you know, again, people will pull up anything and create you know, entrap anyone 
just to discredit them. Um, and so my, what I'm getting to here is in the context of all this, where, where people, you know, your MSN people, your MSN or M, who, you know, the, all the CNN and MSNBC people and all that, they don't have Matt on anymore. You know, I mean, what's his face had Matt on recently and then kind of sabotaged him, even though they're old friends, who's the guy on Friday night and, uh, you know, the comedian, but, you know, and he's kind of gone to the dark side, but, you know, he doesn't understand about Gaza, for example, Mayor Bill Maher, whatever his name is, you know, but if you could, but Matt does have that unique position that you are, you and Max are following in where there are a lot of the people who are steeped in the MSNBC situation, but they actually really admire Matt, but they can't talk about it because it'll, the, the blowback, you just like you had to ask what an NCO is. You may not realize when, when Larry Wilkerson said, you know, Aaron, it's mundane. People just have families and jobs and mortgages and they just can't, you know, I mean, that's what you're up against like you don't even know and, and and that's part of the following the money is people are protecting um their loved ones etc because if you don't go along with that narrative i mean the blowback is beyond anything that i've heard any of you all talk about and and these these government i mean i grew up in the military you the they are extremely corrupt the russians are good people the ukrainians are good people that you know the comedian has been set up to make them all cannon fodder forever we know that i mean so i'm well I'll, and then i'll stop and i'll you, I, i'll i'll mute myself but i just want to ask you if you and matt might consider just reaching out to tony mcpeak who's an old friend of mine i'm not in touch with him lately because he's in his late 80s and but he i saw him on a oregon public broadcasting thing last year he still got that posture he comes across even sharper than than um noam chomsky he was chief of staff of the air force he used to be a republican he i used to spend a lot of time with him because of our involvements in the community he would sit on you know daddy bush's bed with barbara chatting shooting the breeze with them back when he was uh you know, a, a pillar of the Republican Party. He then, fast forward, became co-chair of Obama's campaign. Um, he was very close to Obama. And he would say to me, Lee, I'm in a car with him by ourselves. I'm explaining to him why we have to get out of Afghanistan. He won't do it. You know, I mean, here's this man who supposedly has some authority. He's chief of staff of the Air Force. He was a fighter pilot. He's old buddies with McCain and would say, he'd say to me, I mean, these people are trained to kill as many people as they can. That doesn't mean they don't, I'm trying to explain a complex thing, that they don't have principles in person still. Like that doesn't necessarily mean they've gone to the dark side. I mean, these guys joke about, I mean, he said about his old friend McCain, they're saying, he says, hey, I never, never lost a plane. Like that's the, his buddy who was, and I'm not exaggerating. Right. You know, in fact, Lee, so listen, Lee, I got yeah. you. I appreciate so this suggestion. I've, so I've, heard of, I've heard of Tony McPeak and I, it, it's yeah. a good suggestion. So, and if you have a, well, way, of, if you have, if you have a way of getting in touch with him, then, then send me a message on here. And uh, Well, I do. And, but I'll, I wanted to add to wrap it up though, 
when every time he used to speak, the reason he quit and the mm -hmm. reason you don't see him on MSNBC anymore, because they used to have him on there. The reason, I mean, every time he'd speak, people would just gradually leave. The audience was gone, but he's older now. So it's worth trying again. I'll let you go. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for the call. And you were up. Hi, um, Aaron. I you you your programs are also wonderful. I'm learning everything from you. I'm so impressed. But um, I have a problem, which something what Lee started with. I can't talk to my friends and family about any of this, particularly friends who are um, people who are old enough to remember Vietnam. They were protested that war. They protested Iraq. But they think this. They don't see any negative part that. The United States is playing, and I, I actually just don't know how to talk to them. They, um, I tried yesterday a conversation, and my friend just replied. Everything was emotion, like the what they're seeing in the headlines, obviously what the pictures on television. So I know you're not a psychologist, but how do you talk to people who don't want to know and don't know, you know, any of this history? Um, and I think it's important to talk to them but it's yeah, incredibly yeah. frustrating. <laughs> it is. Well, look, I, I'm certainly no expert. My, what I think one first has to do is, as with, uh, you know, many situations in life, is let, let go of any outcome. So you're not vested in any sort of results any which way. You're not tied to convincing someone of your truth. You're just committed to speaking what you perceive the truth to be, to be, in the most clear way you can. So that's yeah. what your mission is. And not be attached to an outcome because that's beyond your control. We're only yeah. responsible for what we, what we can control. But it's hard. It's hard. And these things get very testy. And I have similar situations like that in my own personal life with friends. You know, I have a whole group chat with me and my, my closest friends from, from my youngest days from when I was in kindergarten. There's like 10 of us <laughs> in the chat. And I, it's like me against everybody else. You wow. Know? And it's... um. So it's difficult, but, you know, you, uh, ultimately there are things, you know, life is bigger than our political beliefs, no matter how strongly we feel about them. And so it's important to keep that in mind and yeah, yeah, yeah. just not be attached to the outcome and just you know, remember that our, our propaganda system is so, it, it's impressive how well it works. There's no yeah. one telling anyone what to think, no one telling anyone what to say, but yet everyone in the media falls completely in line. You know, and in Congress, even our most like, you know, our top dissident leftists are completely silent on the issue of Ukraine in any really meaningful way. In fact, there are people even on the right doing a way better job in speaking out about yeah. using Ukraine's counterfeit. So it's very difficult. And people are understandably, they don't like Putin. Putin's not a very pleasant person, I think, to, you know, uh, he's he's got chauvinistic views. He's a nationalist, uh, and he's causing a lot of suffering with his war. So people are just emotionally caught up in their perceptions, and they've been given no alternative, no background, no context. No one knows about the Minsk Accords, or that right. even there's been a war going on in the Donbass for eight years. People don't know that. So it's just important to keep all that in mind and, and give yourself a break, because <laughs> to convince people, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. Is there one, are there one or two points that you think are the most the you know the the bottom line from explaining the history well i would try to remind people that obama really resisted the policy that is now bipartisan 
that mm-hmm. Obama, I mean, yes, his administration did oversee the coup in 2014. And it's important to explain that, that did happen in 2014. There was a coup. There were peaceful protests calling for uh, uh, integration with the West and against corruption. That, that did happen. But that was turned into, by the U.S. and its far-right allies, a coup that brought far-right people to power. And then Obama, after that, didn't want to further inflame the proxy war. He didn't want to send more weapons to Ukraine because he argued that, first of all, Russia would always have the military advantage. So if you care about Ukraine, you're actually sentencing it to death by flooding it with weapons because Russia will always be able to respond with overwhelming force. And second of all, um, Obama didn't want to arm neo-Nazis, which are a very real problem inside of Ukraine. And so I would remind people that even Obama himself was against the policy that is now bipartisan. That's interesting. I think that's helpful because people sort of love Obama. uh, They do, yeah. Yeah. And and they they remember him. (laughs) Thanks, Aaron. It's terrific what you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate Thanks. that. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Johnny is up. Hello, Aaron. Thanks for Hi. taking my call. So I'm kind of confused. I want to know if you can make a distinction between imperialism and neoliberalism. What actually is driving this? Is it one or the other, or are they both the same? Is it imperialism or neoliberalism? Yep. <laughs> I, uh... I mean, uh, I don't know. That's that's too above me to say. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I I think I think the two are are pretty um, interrelated at this point. You know, they go yeah. hand in hand. Like for example, inside Ukraine, when the U.S. and the EU were trying to force Ukraine into just the pro-Western camp and not in Russia's camp, uh, the U.S. and the, and the EU basically gave Ukraine these terms that would have impoverished it. That were basically forcing Ukraine to cut pensions and energy subsidies. And that's one of the reasons that Yanukovych turned to Russia is because he realized that the deal that he was being offered by the West would have meant for him political suicide. And that's what helped lead to this crisis. And some people think that that was done on purpose, that basically, in fact, the the West wanted Yanukovych to not accept their terms so that they could use that to uh, engineer protests and force Yanukovych from power. Um, yeah. So, and, and those reforms were neoliberal. Right. And, it, and it's strange because at the time, you know, there were a lot of people in Ukraine who really did want to join the West. I mean, the, that was a legitimate political force and they were protesting for it. But um, what few people understood was how harsh the austerity measures that the EU was demanding were. And uh, that's neoliberal. But, you know, uh, so I think the two go hand in hand. Do you think that Putin is a neoliberal or you think he's bucking the neoliberal scourge has been overtaking the world? Uh, within his own country, he's definitely, I think you can say he's neoliberal. I mean, he governs with the help of a, you know, really, uh, insanely wealthy and influential oligarch class. And Mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're hyper-capitalists, you could say. Now with uh, things changing with him turning towards China, uh, maybe, maybe things will be different now. I don't know. But again, that's for me that that's a bit above my area of. Of, of expertise. Okay. Sorry. Well, thanks a lot, Aaron, uh, for taking my call and keep up the work, good work. You are one of the few people out there that really gives us, uh, uh, gives us really good information, accurate information. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks, John. All right, Stephanie. Oh, and so Stephanie, while we're waiting for you to unmute yourself, which you do by hitting the 
microphone in the bottom right. Let me just give an update on uh, Russell Bentley. So I looked at his telegram, and basically he thinks that I went after Scott Ritter. Uh, he thinks somehow that I sold out Scott Ritter. When in fact, when Scott Ritter was suspended on Twitter, it's twice now, he was just suspended again today. I've been urging Twitter to reinstate him. So I think he might have re, uh, or I think he might have misunderstood whatever what I was saying because I've been lobbying very heavily to have Scott Ritter freed from Twitter jail because Scott Ritter is such a informed source when it comes to all things Ukraine and Russia. And uh, him being censored, I thought, was just, um, I mean, we're used to by now Twitter, our Twitter overlords cracking down on dissenting voices. But with Scott Ritter, uh, it especially made me mad because he's such an expert voice. And so anyway, I think Russell Bentley, I'm hoping he misunderstood what I was saying, and that's what led him to criticize me. But we'll see. Anyway, doesn't really matter. Uh, Stephanie, you're <laughs> Yeah, I saw that too. I was thinking the same thing. He was just, mis- he was confused. Yeah. Um, just real quick, going back to what you said about, you know, uh, Russia having other options, which of course always should be the case where violence is never a solution. I mean, I did, I remember hearing there were reports that that a huge attack was about to happen in the Donbass by Ukrainian forces, that they were assembled and that shelling had doubled. I heard, I actually, I think Russell Bentley was talking about that at the time and they were wondering why no one was coming to their rescue, knowing what was pending. So that's one quick question. If you know about that, uh, that claim. And the other thing I just thought you would be a good person to ask this. So, you know, over the last seven years, we've seen the attacks on Eastern Ukraine with the 14,000 deaths recorded most civilians from what I understand and, um, you know, not surprisingly with Russia's decision to move in, everything blew up. And now there are more instances of civilian deaths. And a lot of people are ready to believe that Russia struck the train station and, you know, the theater in Mariupol, but without necessarily any solid evidence. And I'm reluctant to believe any of these until because the Ukrainian military has been willing to attack, quote, their own people in eastern Ukraine. So I guess my question is, once we see reports about who's responsible for these t- attacks, if we ever do, what sources do you feel are reliable anymore? I mean, I, you report on OPCW and the manipulation there by the U.S. and then Bellingcat's involvement and all that. And then Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International have, you know, aren't, aren't, don't have a, the best track record. So it's not really clear to me who to believe when we do <laughs> see great. final reports. Yes. <laughs> so it's where great, would you look for uh, answers? It, it's a great question. Um, it's a great question because the OPCW, as, as, as we see from the leaks, uh, is has been compromised, and so uh, you know, not that everyone there has been corrupted, but certainly their Syria investigations are now obviously incredibly suspect. And whether that would carry over to Ukraine, I, I would not be surprised. So it's hard to know who to trust. I mean, what I can say is that if Ukraine really believed that Russia committed what it's accusing Russia of committing in uh, Bucha and also at that train station, then it would be demanding an independent investigation and getting people in there who can evaluate the evidence. And so far, I don't see them doing that, which to me is telling. That doesn't mean, I mean, if I had to guess, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Russia committed war crimes in, in Bucha, as they're accused of. I just think war crimes, that, that happens in war. I mean, so Russia would not be unique in that respect. And it's silly to pretend otherwise. But it's also silly to pretend that Russia could do something like they're accused of. Uh, the train station, I've seen people analyze the maps. And they think that that is people like Scott Ritter, for example, thinks that looking at the trajectory of the rockets where they were fired from which they claim they can calculate that it shows it was fired from Ukrainian controlled territory plus there have been pictures of the serial numbers of the rockets 
which have apparently been traced to the Ukrainian arsenal. But it's, you know, this stuff could go either way. I mean, you never know. And so in terms of who can conduct a credible investigation, it's a great <laughs> question at this point. Um, there, You know, the UN, I think you can still trust hasn't been completely corrupted the osce the organization for security cooperation in europe they had monitors on the ground in the donbass and they put out some i think accurate unbiased reports about uh, casualties who who was responsible for for fight for uh attacks so you know there has to be some credible sources left but i agree that they're certainly dwindling down as the opcw case Exemplifies, and by the way, this week was the fourth anniversary of the Duma massacre, and we still have no idea what really killed those people in in Duma. And the last article that I've reported on the topic at the Gray Zone was about how, in the early stages of the Duma investigation, there was a proposal uh, to get a forensic pathologist who was located nearby the Hague, where the OPCW is located, and a forensic pathologist would be critical to look at the videos of the bodies because they couldn't excavate the bodies at the point they'd been buried but to look at the videos of the bodies and help determine the cause of death and the time of death and compare the observable symptoms on the bodies with um what was known about uh the symptoms that come from chemical attacks like whether it's sarin or uh chlorine gas and this proposal as i reported was shut down that the uh, a senior OPCW official who was involved in the cover-up that followed turned down this opportunity to bring in a forensic pathologist. And when the OPCW team put in its report that this should be done at a certain stage, that recommendation was censored. So that was a case where a forensic pathologist who could have helped solve the murders was denied to the team. And the same thing could happen here in, in, in Bucha. You could get forensic pathologists on the ground and they could determine the cause of death and the time of death, which is critical to establishing what actually happened and, and trying to attribute responsibility. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, that's why it's really important I mean, to me. Like we hear a lot like, well, you know, as as is expected in war, atrocities happen and it can be on both sides and all that. And it's and of course, that's true. But it's it's really, you know, it's it's important also not to fall into what the the Western, whatever U.S. kind of uh, propaganda war that they're waging, um, that we need solid evidence before we even say that, you know what I mean? So it's like, because these are so atrocious and because, you know, the the missiles or the rockets supposedly had, you know, for the children written on it, which sounds like a complete, you know, it's just raises so many questions. And I mean, that's why I was asking also about Syria, if you know of solid evidence there of other atrocities and the chemical the charges about chemical weapons there and which ones are true and which ones are still not even, not totally. uh, In in Syria, all of these significant chemical weapons attacks, all of them have been undermined by leaks coming from the U.S. or from the OPCW. In the case of Duma, you have like a trove of leaks. It's not even a question anymore that there was no evidence of a chemical attack and there's ample evidence of all this being centered and covered up and doctored. So that's Duma. In Ghouta which was the worst attack. And that was unlike Duma. Duma was a staged incident. That's pretty clear by now. The hospital scene was staged. A BBC reporter did a long investigation. He says, I can prove without a doubt that the hospital scene was staged. And so, you know, based on that, even if the OPCW leaks never materialized, if you have a situation where a hospital scene was staged, what are the odds then that the massacre was real? Because 
in how many times do you have a massacre happen and then the survivors and the witnesses say, you know what, just to make sure that people believe us, let's go stage a scene in the hospital. I mean, just consider the logic there, right? Yeah. So, so, so that's Duma. And then in Ghouta, which was an actual chemical attack, someone did really fire sarin rockets that killed many people. Um, all the evidence that's come out shows that this was carried out by insurgent death squads. Uh, there was a study, I recently covered it, well, not recently, a few months ago, covered it on my show Pushback. A group of open source researchers with a group called Root Claim did a study and they traced the trajectory of the rockets all to one area in insurgent-controlled territory. And this followed the reporting, and this is you know, much more uh, important, of Seymour Hersh, who got leaks from inside the U.S. intelligence community, the Pentagon, showing that actually when the U.S. and the U.K. analyzed the sarin that was used in Ghouta, it was, a, it was not a match for the Syrian government stockpile. Uh, the U.S. had intelligence and was warning in the months leading up to the Ghouta attack that Al-Qaeda in Syria had an advanced sarin production had an advanced sarin production cell and was acquiring the materials to make sarin and, uh, and fire them with chemical weapons. There's, and even U.S. officials who were so worried about Obama enforcing the red line, as he was going to do when Obama threatened to bomb Syria after Ghouta happened in 2013, August 2013, U.S. officials leaked intelligence to the Associated Press in September 2016 saying that the intelligence was, quote, not a slam dunk. And those words were chosen very carefully. It was a, it was a deliberate reference to George Tenet telling George W. Bush that the intelligence was a slam dunk. And also Ted Postel, who is a eminent physicist, former senior Pentagon consultant, many years teaching at MIT, he did a study that showed that the, the trajectory of the rockets, that the range of the rockets fired was uh, was about two kilometers, not the length that had initially been said by fraudulent groups like Bellingcat. And given the range of the rockets that Postal calculated and that the UN, by the way, accepted, uh, it would have been impossible to fire them from anywhere but insurgent-controlled territory. And a similar thing with Khan Sheikhoun as well. And again, Seymour Hersh did great reporting there where he, where he got leaks from inside the US. So in all the major cases, you have um, evidence undermining the allegations that Syria did it, which makes perfect sense because these chemical attacks offer no military value yeah. whatsoever. The only value that is offered here is to insurgents who want to trigger U.S. military intervention. And that's pretty clear to me that that's what happened. And so, uh, you know, that's the background and, I think we're thinking about with Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and I think that's a similar thing to be looking at here because we're seeing that this last thing I'll say is that Ukraine, you know, on the Western press is saying Ukraine is is winning the war and they're pumping in more weapons. Uh, Scott Ritter and other military folks are saying, no, Russia is doing what it came to do. It doesn't mean it's not going to be prolonged and everything, but that that it's just two different narratives. And it's more likely, as they say, when you do some sorts of crazy attacks, that it's people who are in desperate, <laughs> desperate situation and they're trying to get the intervention. So that's another reason I've that cast doubt for me on a lot of this. Last thing is just Scott Ritter saying that Russia said no civilian, you know, do not target civilians. He's knows the Russian military. Obviously, once you're in the heat of war, whatever, you know, things can happen. But I guess that's where I'd be curious to know what um, what Russia has actually been proven to be uh, guilty of in terms of this type of targeting civilians or atrocities or anything like that, if you know of anything. Well, again, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they have committed 
atrocities and uh, whether that comes from deliberately killing civilians or whether it becomes from the fact that the Ukrainian military has been placing uh, its forces inside residential neighborhoods. Um, I don't know, but um, well, I guess I mean in the past of, of Russia's any of their record in terms of Syria or other places. Like, well, look, you know of any? I can, I can tell there. you in Syria. I can tell you. In Syria, I saw for myself. Russia was brutal in Syria. They mm-hmm. wiped out entire neighborhoods, just carpet bomb places, basically. Now they weren't doing it for fun. These were areas that were occupied by sectarian death squads like Jaysh al-Islam and Duma, which is a Salafist, Saudi-armed militia that was putting people in prisons and torturing them and putting people in cages. So, uh, you know, but Russia was merciless and just flattening areas that they wouldn't leave. And in the mm-hmm. process that, 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 that killed a lot of civilians, that, that's just a fact. Um, it's, uh, it's a fact. Now, technically it's not a war crime because Russia is doing so at the invitation of the Syrian government and they're fighting an insurgency that is armed by, you know, the world's most powerful governments, the U S Saudi Arabia, Turkey cutter and those insurgents were shelling Damascus and other areas. So it was a brutal war, but certainly there were definitely atrocities committed by Russia in the process. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that that's why if we can stop war, we should, because war crimes happen during wars. I mean, this is what happened. Yeah. What, uh, <laughs> what do people expect? To, what do people expect to happen when you flood Syria with billions of dollars worth of weapons and it's going to an insurgency that's dominated by Al Qaeda? As U.S. officials knew from the start, the Pentagon's intelligence agency warned them about that. Um, th- it was obvious even from reporting in the New York Times. They would they would always they wouldn't say it up to a uh, you know like they wouldn't highlight this, but it was clear from the start that this insurgency was not moderate rebels. It was dominated by Al Qaeda, and Joe Biden himself admitted that in uh, when he speak when he was speaking to Harvard in 2014. I would look up that clip if you haven't seen it. He blurts yeah. out the truth. That basically we were we were our, our allies, he says, were arming an insurgency dominated by Nusra, which is Al Qaeda. Now, the only error that Joe Biden made was letting, was leaving out that the U.S. was coordinating all these weapons shipments along with its allies. But that's the only mistake he made. Right. Well, thanks a lot, Aaron. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, Peter. And Peter, if you're there, there is a, there you go. Yeah. Now, thank you for taking my call. Uh, a great show as always. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, the American went through this, uh, Soviet mania in the fifties, uh, the Vietnam mania in the sixties and Muslim mania since 20, 2001 and China mania since 2017 and now Russia mania. So it seems to me that Americans have suffered from a chronic absence of independent media because the mainstream media always seeks a profit, not, you know, the truth. You know, that's why we're having this uh, tremendous disputes. Just, uh, you know, Aaron, you had just discussed with, uh, I think, Stephanie with the previous caller. Right. So uh, so this question for you, Aaron, is this. Do you see a path of building up an independent but also influential alternative media? So, you know, what that path will be in your in your take and, you know, to be more specific, you know, how you see yourself to make uh, AM Live to be as uh, believable, as popular as the, the Rush Lindahl show, or probably even better. So that's my question. Thank you for taking my call. 
Well, Peter, thanks for the question. I have no media strategy. I'm just here doing what I do. I spend a lot of time writing. That's what I'm primarily focused on. I like doing broadcast stuff and I like interviewing people and I'd love to have a platform where I could especially debate more people and ask challenging questions because I hate watching CNN and MSNBC or even Democracy Now and seeing statements being made that I know are false but are never challenged. It's it's frustrating. Oh, but, yes, you're right. So, yeah. yeah, I really want to push you and Katie and others because I, I, I see I mean, you, your work and Katie's work and so many others are just so tremendously important for for the hu- humankind, for the peace. Yeah. World peace, right? So I really want to push you and Katie. Say, hey, let's you know put our brains together. You know how you know. Let's spend some time uh, in uh, to just discuss this topic. I got you. You know, you. using yep. calling or whatever. You know, I'll be you. happy to call in. You know, because uh, I see. Uh, you know, uh, not to drag this on. Uh, I I I, re- I just today I saw this Ukrainian symphony orchestra literally have to re-established themselves in China in 2019 because of the economic situation and civil war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So they yeah. literally landed up, uh, you know, continue their music uh, 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 affairs there. And second is that I, I have saw this uh, 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 Chinese uh, lady, a video blogger on YouTube, uh, showing this uh, 10-year-old Afghan girl being sold to a 30-year-old man for $1,000. I was like, you know, nobody in America really cares about this anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though we are in this, uh, you know, war on terror mania since 2001, right? And all that. So, you know, again, going back to you, I'm going to put this, uh, you know, probably unfairly on your shoulder and Katie's shoulder saying, hey, as an alternative media person, I want you to, to work harder, you know, Okay, well, listen, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. I, I'm working as hard as I can. Just trust me. I work every single day nonstop. Now, I, I, I would like to obviously, you know, uh, expand my horizons and reach a bigger audience. But, you know, this easier said than done. And some people have done a really good job at building a big audience, like Jimmy, like my friend Jimmy Dore and Crystal Ball and Sugger. They've built a huge following. And, you know, I, I hope to follow in their footsteps. But it's I have a lot going on right now. And it's difficult, especially when you're someone with, my views. I mean, I talk about things that like get people in trouble and are people that people get yelled at for even thinking about, like especially Syria and Russiagate. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's the situation mm-hmm. I'm in. And also, I'll just tell you that the lefty media world is incredibly petty. There's a lot of people yes. fighting. People, yes. mm-hmm. people who should mm-hmm. be friends, people who should be friends are instead bitter enemies. And, and so it just makes collaboration difficult. But I'm lucky to be in the situation I'm in, and I, I appreciate your words of encouragement. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Stephen. Or Stephen. Hey, Stephen. Yeah. Hi. Um, uh, so to Peter, I also wanted to recommend uh, Taibbi's last book, Hate Inc., uh, loosely extending uh, Chomsky's uh, manufacturing consent, but it's kind of germane to that. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I really appreciate how hard you work, Aaron, and I think you do a great job. Uh, I see what you and the Gray Zone are doing. Um, it seems to me, you know, really traditional, credible journalism, uh, and and you're a credit to that. So, thank you. Um, yeah. By the way, like I just say, do you know how long it takes to write? It's uh, it's like people forget <laughs> this now because most people are doing video, but like. We're, you know, we have, you know, Max and I have a lot of respect for 
you know, old school journalism, which is, you know, like my hero, Cy Hirsch, who, by the way, turned 85, years, who turned 85 this week. And that that's what journalism is. And it's in this YouTube world, it gets lost a little bit. People forget that the real work comes in reporting and writing. And it's it takes a lot of time, you know, so it, it makes doing video stuff uh, that much more difficult because there's there, there's not the time for it if we want to do the serious work of, of, of writing, which is where, you know, real, real journalism happens. Sorry. Yeah. To yeah. Um, so this is all kind of germane to what I w- wanted to ask about. So I, I kind of look at what you guys are up against. Um, generally we, I feel like we keep our wars quiet, but then we've had occasional media blitzes, uh, like mm-hmm. what we're seeing in Ukraine today. And of course, Iraq, uh, comes to mind as well. Um, and so there's some novel differences that have, uh, you know, changed in the last, uh, 15, 20 years. Uh, things I can think of off the top of my head, uh, censorship and suppression. Uh, we definitely have a re- regime around that now, uh, everywhere from Twitter to Google, uh, shadow banning. There's there's a number of issues there uh, with um, deplatforming and things like that. And then, of course, you also have the NDAA and active propaganda campaigns that can be waged directly by the government and uh, various agencies at this point. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering if you feel... Um, to the previous caller's point, if you're kind of working in an outdated model, right? Because like traditionally, you know, people um, self-align and prescribe themselves, you know, news sources that they trust. And I feel like that model is being actively disrupted right now. Yes. But so, I mean, what, what model would you propose? I don't know that I have a good uh, answer for that. I mean, there, there are some, platforms that allow like distributed hosting and stuff like that. But I'm just wondering, you know, like they've weaponized a couple of these things for a reason and it's been effective, you know, at creating kind of this facile, hypocritical mass following of, of people, you know, who care about Ukraine, but not Yemen, uh, who, you know, don't really understand the history. Right. So they care, but not enough to actually do any digging or take it seriously. And, and so I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I was just kind of curious if it if it feels like, you know, e- even in the last 20 years, kind of the role of journalism has kind of receded a little bit because people are, you know, actively being disrupted in, in who they follow, where they have a voice, things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that the values that I have are less valued among some of my people I used to be colleagues with and friends with. You know, that the tradition of adversarial journalism that I grew up with has has been uh, weakened and it's been weakened by many factors. And uh, but I just, you know, look, I, like all I can do is focus on, on what I do and hope that it resonates, you know. Um, yeah, it's admirable. I really appreciate that you're doing it. I just I I look at the again, the things you guys are uh, kind of facing a. Uh, uphill battle against, right? And it seems unfair to expect the same tools to kind of do the same job that they would have historically. Right. And that, yeah. that's really all I wanted to point fair out. Enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Thank you. And Juna, you are up. Hello. Hi. Hi, Aaron. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, first of all, big thank you to you for providing this platform. Uh, I think it's, it's great. I'm calling um, 
calling from Finland, just about uh, 100 kilometers from the Russian border. So obviously, I'm quite concerned about this issue. And it's oh, good. And by the way, I, I scheduled this call in today earlier to accommodate callers like you. So thank you for. Oh yes, thank yeah, you so, so much. Yes, it's, it's, it's great to be able to participate in this conversation. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, so I would like to touch upon obviously Finland <laughs> and the. Um, um, and what's happening here, because um, um, something something is changing here, and, and, and mm. something big is happening. Uh, I, I don't know if you have been hearing about the news regarding um, NATO membership or NATO, uh, Finland applying for NATO, but uh, this is something that um, has just happened in a matter of a few weeks. Yep. The, the sentiment in the country has completely changed. Uh, Finland obviously had has had a long history of neutrality, with um, uh, it was a period called Finlandization of the Second World War, um, when Finland wanted to maintain peaceful relations with both West and and the East, uh, obviously Soviet Union at the time. And this was a doctrine and policy that was carried on until very recently. Yeah, um, even though Finland has been in the NATO since the nineties, we haven't been uh, in the EU. Sorry, we haven't been in the NATO. Um, but now with this conflict, um, things have changed radically, and uh, and and indeed, it seems that Finland is going to apply for NATO membership in a matter of weeks. Um, top politicians here are are saying that. Um, yeah. And 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 so I was just wondering, what what do you think about the situation? Because um, um, it seems to have been been a big strategic blunder um, for Putin, you know, that he want, attacked Ukraine because he wanted to prevent NATO enlargement. But the consequence of that is possible or highly likely NATO enlargement in the north um, or north of the border. Um, and what, what kind of outcomes do you do you see for this um, when this situation develops, whether this is going to lead to escalation or de-escalation? What do you think? Thanks. Let me first ask you a question. How yep. was neutrality working out for Finland? in your view um so i have a complicated view on this i mean it it, it, ha, it is perceived in finland in 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 um quite negatively nowadays the period mm. of finlandization the, uh, during the cold war because obviously there were limitations regarding freedom of speech um people weren't able to criticize soviet union uh, openly and and Soviet Union obviously influenced Finnish politics, but it was still in a very soft way, you know, compared to what Soviet Union did in in Eastern Europe. It's it can't be compared. Obviously, Finland also enjoyed huge degrees of uh, economic growth during that period, and and we had a liberal Western society. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a complicated question. Um, uh, the, of course, Finland sacrificed some degree of 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 autonomy in its foreign policy and stuff but for normal Finnish people I don't think that was a big sacrifice to be honest um, but but I think this is this people have still had some kind of trust in Russia until this conflict broke out I think yeah uh, normal people yeah. you know they had some kind of instinct that we can have peaceful relations with Russia we can you know even though there are problems regarding democracy and human rights we can work with Russia and we can you know try to help them out to to create a democracy or something like this and i think those illusions have been shattered now and 
you know, it's it's and now now for the first time, it's uh, the 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 public public opinion has has shifted in favor of of NATO. Um, so yes, it's it's yeah. I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, look, I mean, the uh, so if Finland does join NATO, then Russia will obviously increase its military uh, presence, its military strength on that border. And I, beyond that, it's, it's, um, it's hard to predict. I would be, I, I was, I was surprised. I mean, not knowing very much about Finland's internal politics. I was surprised when Finland made that announcement because I just thought that, I thought that neutrality has been working out great for Finland. I mean, more or less, and they wouldn't feel the need to, to join NATO. But I, but this, I understand that, you know, Russia invading Ukraine has changed a lot of people's minds. So I I don't have any insight really that I think could be helpful. Because, I mean, you're you're there, so you know far more than me. But certainly, yeah. it's a it's a scary development. It's a scary development. And but of course, it also is Finland's right. You know, if they want to join NATO, they have the right to. And certainly, they have a much better case to join NATO than Ukraine does in terms of their internal stability. But do I think it'd be a good thing for the world? No, it would actually increase the threat to the world because that's what I think NATO basically exists to do is to, as Richard Sakwa says, manage risks that are created by its own existence. Yes, the question is whether Russia now, you know, you know, we can uh, argue about whether Russia today is the way it is because of NATO or, mm-hmm. or NATO expansionism, uh, that may be, uh, but it is what it is, right? <laughs> we can't turn back the time. Uh, and, and in this situation, for Finland, you know, I can understand the argument that many Finnish people are making now that, you know, we have to join because uh, Russia is unpredictable and this conflict may may escalate and we, and Finland doesn't want to be alone because Finland is going to be a battleground no matter what, you know, because of its strategic location for Russia. If there is going to be a, a war between NATO and, and, and Russia, they, Russia would have a strong interest in seizing parts of finland for for that's their right. military purposes so so that's as right. long as but so so for finland you know <laughs> it seems to be logical to join nato because at least then then we would get some 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 weapons and some military support and so on so yeah anyway thanks a lot for your for your comment thank you thanks for calling all right And Desi Dorada, you are up. And to speak, you have to hit you the mic. You should microphone. be able to hear me, right? There we go. Yes. Hi. Yeah, yeah. Ah, hi. Hi, Aaron. Hi. Uh, notes. I, I've made like several notes for us. People were asking questions to you. Uh, notes on the people having family issues. Read Propaganda by Edward Bernays. Pro- okay. The book is Propaganda 1928. Yep. Uh, this will give you context on the asymmetric information, basically war, that uh, you will have your with your family members. Because if you have a discussion that lasts one hour, where you explain as good as possible your own positions, your own perspectives, uh, your family members will go and watch CNN for the next five hours. Mm-hmm. So you are just asymmetrically fighting against the information <laughs> that, you are, that your family right. members will intake. 
Uh, when it comes to uh, any Fox News or Breitbart writers that might be lurking in the call, uh, look onto the Kramatorsk serial numbers of the missile fire. Aaron already mentioned, like, it seems that the missile that was fired into Kramatorsk might have belonged to the Ukrainian army. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying that the numbers itself uh, 100% guarantees that the fire that the missile was fired, but uh, it is literally like 13 digits away from the latest recorded uh, already fired mi missile from the Ukrainian army into the Donbass. So it is like literally the same serial numbers, basically. It could have been that this missile was captured by advancing Donbass forces and then they wrote the, the little like for the kids and they shot it away. It's unknown, but the serial number is already from the Ukrainian army. Mm -hmm. uh, this is for you, Aaron. Uh, Proton Mail has big crypto AG vibes. I will not recommend using it. Uh, wait, what has crypto AG vibes? Proton Mail. Proton Mail, okay. I've heard that yeah, before. I will not I've recommend using it. I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Yeah. I've heard the same thing about Signal, too, you know? Um, uh, which, yeah, uh, yeah. Signal is like slightly. I mean, you know that Signal might have been funded by uh, by Inqtel, right? Or at mm -hmm. least the, the the predecessor of Signal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, mind well, you, mind you, that just because it was funded by Inqtel doesn't mean that is it, it is bad, right? But right. that it is like spearhead like uh, cryptology. Right. But right, yeah. Right. Uh, next note. Uh, Aaron, this is also for you. Aaron, if Aaron is for the guys like listening, Aaron is not an economist. I I heavily disagree with like any <laughs> regarding that you have been speaking regarding uh, neoliberalism versus imperialism versus capitalism, etc. Uh, I am like a, a sort of trained economist. Like I heavily disagree with you. Uh, if you are interested in reading like the perspectives, I will recommend you, Aaron, to read uh, the brick El Ladrillo which is, uh, it's like literally like a brick of text. Uh, okay. It was the the document that was used in Chile in 1973 by the Chicago Boys in order to implement all of their ideas that came from Hayek and Friedman. So that is literally the book. It's called El Ladrillo. It's only basically in Spanish and it can't be, it can't be found in English, sadly. Uh, okay. Was, so, 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 okay. So you're like, recommending, so you're, so you're recommending a text. So you're recommending a text that 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 none of us can access except for those who speak Spanish. Basically, yeah, <laughs> it is really right, good. Well, fair it enough. Is really, well, really good. Let's let's hope it comes uh, to English version. Anyhow, uh, other yeah. note: different models of media that the guy was previously talking about. Uh, the yeah. problem is lack of resources. Okay, I, we we all love Aaron, but Aaron, you don't have a, a national endowment for democracy of your that own. That is true. That so, is true. I can confirm that. There is, I can definitely confirm that. <laughs> there is a yes. limited, yeah, there yes. is a limited amount of signal boosting that everyone in this call can provide to him. So if right. if you can signal boost Aaron or signal boost like other commentators such as Jesha Levine, that I personally find like quite like agreeable, uh, Derek Davidson, uh, Daniel Besner, and others. Uh, that will be good. Like signal, signal boost these people because they do like great, great work. Uh, Finland, uh, other note: Finland will join NATO fast. Everything that I have been reading, like it will happen fast. Uh, probably by the by the by August, like it will already be like within inside of NATO. Uh, right. Sweden, uh, it might take maybe the end of the year. It might or it might not happen. 
And that is the interesting bit because uh, Sweden already has been threatened many times with uh, <laughs> with those like diesel fueled uh, nuclear arm Russian submarines like trying to like skittle around between the between the little island like islands in, in the coast of Sweden. Uh, what else I was gonna say? Well, listen, I'm gonna stop you there. Twitter is handled I wanna, by. I, I want to. Um, yeah, no, I imagine like there is other people, and you have, and you're. But I really yeah, appreciate yeah, yeah. these uh, these thorough notes. These thorough notes. So thank no, you no, for the call. Cheers, dude, and watch out for Rodomel. That's that's a big one for you. Got it. <laughs> Got it. I appreciate appreciate the warning. Thank you. All right. Thanks for the call. And yeah, Dave, you're up next. Take care. Oh, okay. We lost Dave. So, Fahim, you are up. Aaron, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, Aaron. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. So, anyway, I have a uh, question and a, a comment. Uh, I, I've been uh, hearing about this uh, Center for Demo- Democratic Resilience uh, within NATO. Is this what just another version of NED with uh, European accents or... Uh, uh, what uh, and I haven't heard of that one, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's yet one more shady spook front group. Uh, there's a lot of them; they're hard to keep track of. I mean, one easy clue is whether Ann Applebaum is on the board. If Ann Applebaum is on the board, then that should set off. She's on the, uh, you know, I feel like a million boards of all these shady uh, regime change uh, think tanks. But yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised if there's one more. Yeah, because on Thursday was when uh, the House uh, passed a non-binding uh, binding resolution mm-hmm. uh, affirming uh, equivocal, uh, unequivocal support for NATO and uh, and to and ask Biden to uh, use his voice to establish this Center for Dem- Democratic Resilience. And I was like, well, is this what another glorified NED or? Uh, uh, sounds pretty much uh, like it. I haven't uh, researched uh, into it, but I was uh, wondering if you uh, uh, did. But I agree with you on the uh, looking at the cast of characters who may be uh, pushing uh, this as a uh, good uh, clue. So uh, the other thing I wanted to mention what uh, Anne asked uh, uh, earlier with regards to talking about uh, with family members and all. I personally like having grown up uh, feeling the hot side of the Cold War. Mm. Um, over uh, the years, I uh, like when we would have these uh, humanitarian interventions and all, I was uh, at times a bit uh, on the fence uh, and all till one day when I heard uh, Vijay Prashad once uh, mentioned d- during his talk. Uh, at the James Connolly uh, forum, he said that if you ask any sensitive person, uh, was the Vietnam War uh, there to help uh, the people? And any uh, sensitive person would say no, it did not help uh, the uh, people. So he mentioned that you know the cat, the class character of the government. Uh, uh, at that time is pretty much the same as the class character of the government now. So what makes you think that this time a U.S. is intervening to help uh, the people? And that to me was like a completely like uh, eureka mom- moment where I could easily use uh, that and at least make people think that oh, before you uh, start uh, toting the uh, mainstream uh, line, just think about uh, uh, how 
who are the people pushing uh, for it. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I, the, um, you know, we all have different ways of persuading people and I, th- thanks for sharing what, what works for you and maybe people can pick up something from that. So thank you for the call. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Well, uh, that's it. Uh, thank you so much, Aaron. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And Mirko, you are up. And Mirko, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right. Hello, can you hear me now? Yes, hi. Hi, I can't believe I'm talking to you. It's just very kind of funny. Uh, because, you know, I'm used to the separation of uh, what, you li- what you read online. and, uh, and uh, uh, But anyway, here we are up close. So uh, I wanted to ask you uh, mainly because I know that you've been banging on about uh, the idea that, you know, Zelensky didn't, um, you know, didn't... Uh, 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 that that he knew that NATO wasn't wasn't, wasn't going to give him the the place uh, to Ukraine, and uh, I just wanted to to I, I actually read it on a on a commentary today uh, to 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 your I think your twi- your Twitter thing uh, your post, and um, you know he was an actor when he got that offer offer in the sense that I mean they would, like you say I mean they were at war already I mean and 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 he was an actor so 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 what I'm trying to get at is. Um, he was already involved, so so for him to 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 ask him to to sort of you know uh, make that decision based on 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 what's right or what's wrong, he was already compromised in that sense. And then I guess that takes me to the further point, which is, um, you know, uh, what is your view on 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 this issue? As in, if nothing like this would be ha- is, uh, would be happening now. Um, wouldn't I mean what what can we do because it, 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 what I see is 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 that okay yes and I do agree with you that the U.S. has very very sticky fingers here but I mean there's there's an alignment uh, with with European interests I mean if you say that neutrality would be uh, good and it did work for Finland for a long time I mean it w- it would be a matter of time before russia would would advance anyway and this is what's been bugging me because i do fo- i do get your in your 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 position but 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 i fail to sort of see an alternative that would would match uh, the 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 the, um, the scenario basically and 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 that's it i mean and, and I, I, maybe it's too late now to for for this path to be even worth men- mentioning but I just don't want to hear your thoughts. So I don't, sorry, I don't follow your question. <laughs> Shit. Uh, okay. So my question is, I mean, what's your alternative to, to, to NATO and, and, and it's posturing and in this, in this kind of, well, oh, oh, right. Okay. So, so why not, why, why not have a security alliance that incorporates all of Europe? Why have this alliance that isolates one particular country, Russia surrounds it with, hostile military and nuclear weapons. Why not have a security alliance for all of Russia? As Russia has proposed, and as people like Chaz Freeman, who was a U.S. diplomat that I interviewed recently, as he proposed when he was working under Clinton, I mean, there's no inherent right for NATO to exist. It, it, it made sense, you could argue, during the Soviet Union when there was a massive Soviet Union bloc, and so it made sense to have another alliance to counter that. But now, what's the point? So, 
when you ask what's the alternative to NATO, it's like well, my question is what's the point of NATO? What does it what does it provide? Who does it help? Did it help Libya when Libya was destroyed in two thousand eleven by NATO? Or uh, you know, Yugoslavia when NATO was used to basically create a whole new state. Um and in the process, you know, causing many atrocities. I just don't see why we have to accept that NATO is this inherent virtue. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm. I'm. I'm totally with you. And and, and Iraq and Libya really messed with me. So so. Uh, well, more with them. So, yeah. Thanks for your answer. Um, great. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Dave. And then we're going to have to wrap in uh, in four minutes. So I'll try to get to as many calls as I can in the time. Go ahead, Dave. Aaron, it's yes, good I... to hear your voice. Uh, I did retreat this uh, call, in call, so the Twitter world needs to know about this. Um, thank you. Your, oh, your work is incredible with the gray zone. Thank you. And uh, sorry I keep tagging you. <laughs> I'm having a Twitter war with some left groups that uh, – they just flip it around. The minute I talk about the neo-Nazis, they want to talk about Russian fascists. Um, but there's right. more nuance than that. Um, I, I quit the Democrat and Republican parties and joined um, uh, DM25 with Giannis Virkakis. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. see his name. And I totally agree with him. Finlandization uh, to avoid NATO is the way to go because... Every time I read about NATO, it's worse than I thought from before. And um, I think they control nations in the West or in Europe with IMF or whatever weapons. It's all about the capitalism and the money. And they say, you know, pay up, you know. So <laughs> I think they're kind of like the, the world's bully. And it's just a, a struggle to talk to anybody about it. And I... You know, I, I have no problem in my circle because uh, the way I bring the nuances, I talk about how all wars are bad. You know, if you look at the global south, they're not signing on to the Russia, you know, Russophobia. And it's more than Russophobia, meaning, uh, you know, in terms of advertising and restaurants and all that. But it's it's more about do we really know anything about like Scott Ritter said, know your enemy. Do mm-hmm. we really know enough about what Russia is? Are they homophobic? No. Are they uh, anti-religion, orthodox only? No. Yeah. You know, 10% of Russia has Muslims, mm-hmm. 10 to 14% are Muslims. So there's so much misinformation that it's, it's mind-boggling. You can't even have a conversation with most people because they've made up their minds. Yep. Um, and you can make new friends, but don't throw away your old friends. You need, you need your allies, even though they don't agree with you. I hear that. I, yeah, I have a, I have a friend um, who doesn't want to talk about it, but we're friends. And we just, I say my piece, he says his piece, we sprinkle some facts, keep our cornbread and walk away. <laughs> there we go. That's, um, so yeah. that's all I wanted to say. I want to thank you for keeping it up. I just discovered Consortium News. I didn't know Chris Hedges was a board director of that. That's um, a great site. And by the way, that's a great site of, of what a, of like, Really, we have lost an era of journalism that we might never have again, where Consortium News was founded by Robert Perry, who was a veteran reporter, worked for the Associated Press, RIP, broke a number of huge stories, including during the Iran-Contra scandal. And he he founded Consortium News because there just was no space for him left in the mainstream media to tell tell the truth. 
you go back and look at what he wrote about Ukraine, about Syria, about Russiagate, everything he said was exactly on point. And he predicted so much of what followed after his death. And he was just a true legend. And But luckily that site lives on and carries on his tradition. But, you know, it's a relatively marginal website. And it's, you know, it speaks to how degraded journalism has become that people like Robert Perry had to found his own small site just to get the facts out. And now he's gone and it's, it's a huge loss. And, but his, his legacy certainly continues. And, you know, I, I'll just share, like when you said we need to bring the nuance, I was thinking of the public enemy song, bring the noise. Thinking, <laughs> this is like the updated version of now in our era. We need to bring the nuance. So, and the noise. So anyway, Dave, thank you for the call. Thank you. And Peter, we'll take you as the last caller. Peter, if you're there. Thank you, uh, Aaron. There you Thank Hi. you, Aaron. Was, oh, I just Peter, heard uh, quite you've a... Already, you've already called yeah. in, so no. We're not going to take you as the last caller. We're, oh, uh, sorry. We're, I, but I appreciate, the, I appreciate the enthusiasm, but yeah, no. No, we're no problem. You. Thank you. Okay, so mm -hmm. Mark, you are the last caller. If you're there. There you go. Can you hear me? Yes, hi. Um, yeah, I just wanted to um, comment on a, a, another comment. <laughs> um, somebody was talking about Finland and Sweden. Um, and yeah, just a, a, lot of, a lot of people who are recently um, either coming to the West or have the opportunity to come to the West. I mean, my partner's Iranian and I've met a lot of Iranian people and they've, you know, until I actually come to the West, they've got a very rosy picture of what's going on. And sure, the West was great, maybe, um, you know, late 1970s, 80s, even 90s, you know, when I was coming up and everything. And Australia, we've we've been very lucky. Um, we've had it much better than, say, for, for instance, the US. Um, but, yeah, I, like, I wonder if these these countries in, in Eastern Europe have have some of that um, that that you know glossy picture of the, of the West that is no longer valid you know we're going the wrong way and, and going the wrong way fast um, and wh whether that plays a part you, you know whether whether the advertising is just so good <laughs> mm. and the reality is, is not so great anymore at least right uh, well so i i definitely think you're seeing a uh, breakdown of the social order in in nato societies and western societies uh, some more than others i live in the u.s and you know it's it's <laughs> there's definitely a lot of issues here and yeah um i i see you know i i share a lot of your sentiment um all we can do is try to make the place that we live in a better place, you know, but I, I agree. It's a, it's a strange time to be in the West and even what defined left wing and right wing is changing. You know, people, people's priorities have changed a little bit. And, you know, to me, I mean, a big issue of concern for me is just how the left is so absent now on issues of war. And it's, there's like Republicans in Congress who I think are doing a much better job at challenging the proxy war in Ukraine, for example. And that, and that worries me. And I, I in um, 
because I think it will lead to the left, at least the left that I identify with, the left being further and further marginalized if it can't meet the moment. And uh, for me, that's a scary thought. But, you know, I also believe in, I try to be hopeful and all we can do is do what we can and make our the place we live better, you know? Yeah, and also, um, I just wanted to say that tech people like me, we, we're not, um, you know, we don't speak up enough. That There's so much that, that's already be done, been done, so much hard work um, to make, uh, you, you know, to, to have alternatives available to the, the big tech platforms, but we've yeah. been shut up or... or um, I, I mean, even in our, like, I, I live in a place called Brisbane in, in Australia and, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's hard not to get paranoid about people coming in and, and you, you know, trying to disrupt our communities here, you know, mm. and we're trying to prepare for this kind of thing. But, mm. but anyway, um, I'll shut up now. Well, thank you for the call. Thanks for calling in from from Brisbane. And look, since Hamrick, you're there in line, we'll take you as the last caller, if you're still there. Hey, Aaron. Hi. Since you received a call from Norway and from Finland, I thought it only fair to uh, finish up by a call from Sweden. Ah, very cool. Great. A Nordic trifecta. I'll make it really brief. I was the one that sent a message to you uh, to uh, request the earlier time. So thanks a lot for that. It, it hey, helped. well, there, there you go. This is this is your show then. Yeah. So, so I'll just leave it at that. I was going to talk a little bit about Belarus and my friends there and what Lukashenko has been uh, telling people uh, uh, to the general public there. But uh, we'll just do that another time. All right. Well, listen, thanks. Thanks for the call. And thanks for uh, for sticking around. To, you do, you uh, do a great service, and and you're you're just a uh, star. Uh, well, Keep pre- that in thanks, mind. Thanks a lot. I, pre- I appreciate that. Everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. I really love doing this. It's great to hear from everybody from all around the world. And I'll be back here tomorrow with Katie Helper at eleven o'clock Eastern time. After we do Monday morning on YouTube, so join us then if you can. And we'll see you next time. Have a great rest of your Sunday or Monday, if you're in a different part of the world. Bye, everybody.